Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Genesis chapter 11. Well, today we're going to finish this first section of our study of the book of Genesis as we've considered the question of provenance, origins. Where did we come from? How did this get here? What's going on, right? And we come to this account of the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel. And I want us to look today at the Tower of Babel, the name of glory. And as we prepare for the message today, I want to put a question on your mind and heart for you to consider throughout today's message. And that question is simply this, what is it that centers your life? What is it that centers your life? We're created for a life that is centered on God's glory. And when anything else becomes the center of our life, it steals glory from God. Now, it can direct glory to us, and sometimes that can feel good for a time, but ultimately, it's harmful for us. So today, I want you to consider what is centering my life as we talk through and consider this narrative from Genesis 11. Let's go to Genesis 11. I'm going to begin by reading verses 1 through 4. Now, the whole earth had one language in the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's stop there for a moment. I want us to read the few verses of this narrative as we work through it. And what we begin to see in these first four verses is now the nations have begun to be formed and we're seeing what it is that unifies them. When God brought Noah and his family off of the ark, he commanded them, reiterating to them the creational mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so that's what they were to do. And then we have, at the, uh, in chapter 10 of Genesis, we have the lineage or the uh, genealogies there that begin to show us how it is that the nations began to form from Noah's children. Well, when we come to chapter 11, we see they're forming all right, but they're overproducing, you might say, in some ways. And what we see is, is some of the things that unite, that unify and unite them. Verse 1 emphasizes it this way, that there was one language and they had the same words across the whole earth. Now that's a little hard for us to understand, I, I know. I mean, everyone's speaking the same language. Uh, good grief, sitting in the room today, we don't even all speak the same language, right? I'll get back to that in a moment. But the primary point of commonality here centered upon their common language. Their common language. Common language is important. Now, let me get back to the point I just made about all of us sitting in the room. Some of you may have read this recently, but Kristen read an article on 39 slang words that millennials have obviously created because I totally don't understand them. And as she often does, she read the article to me. And as she read the article, she gave me the quiz to see how many of these words that I knew. 
Now, friends, I'm pretty in tune with culture. I know what's going on. I got zero right. I'm not unaccustomed to getting zero in quizzes. I'm familiar with that. But when it's a cultural quiz, I got zero. This is a problem for me. It destroyed me almost. I mean, in that moment, I I felt judged. Strangely shook. Anxious by FOMO. And people were very salty towards me in my pain and struggle. Some even accused me of being an Oklahoma Sooner fan. I was momentarily turnt to hear that they were woke because that can be a major hurdle in the mornings for them, I know. But I should have suspected something when they offered receipts without one, uh, first asking for dollars. Honestly, the whole experience just left me asking, what's Gucci about all this? It's surely not lit. It really clocked me. So I've just said bye, Felicia, to all of it. (laughs) So let me pause and ask you, how did you do? How many did you know? If you're sitting in the room today and you're like, is he still speaking English? That's what I mean by saying we all talk the same language supposedly and yet we don't speak the same language. All the people on earth having one language and the same words is a massive feat in my consideration when I think about there are three people living under my roof right now and I struggle to understand what one third of us says most of the time. Right? Common language becomes the first unifying characteristic of the nations in Genesis 11. Now, when we go on to verse 2, it tells us of a second unifying characteristic in common location. Common location. So as the people moved east, they came to settle in uh, the land of Shinar. They, They settled in what was known as a common place. And this becomes a second primary identifier, not only of where they were, but who they were because they were all together in one place. I'm going to help you culturally a little bit today with understanding the mindset of small-town America. That's where I originally come from. I once had a church member in a small community say to me, you're not from here. And they weren't just talking about like geographically where I was from. They were talking about a whole lot more than that. But they went on to say, but if your kids are born here, They'll be from here. Okay. I mean, there was a very clear line drawn. I was on one side, and my kids could potentially be on the other side. I once had another, an older lady in a church I served in, and by older, I mean mid-90s, okay? Put her finger kind of in my chest and said, I was here before you got here, and I'll be here after you're gone. I thought, well, you know, chronologically and, and, and reality, that, that could be a wrong statement. But for some reason, there's a lot of fear in me right now, and I believe you. I'm going to leave you alone. She wasn't trying to intimidate me, but she did. There is a common universal cultural sentiments that say this. If you weren't born here, you ain't from here. And if you're from a small town... You can understand this. Here's the rest of it. But if you are from here, 
It doesn't matter where you go, you're always one of us. A number of years back, Kristen and I had gone home to visit my parents, and they lived in the small town of about 750 that I grew up in, and my family, three generations deep, uh, had roots there. And we'd been out to dinner with some friends that night that had gone home with us. And on our drive back, I came back into that small town that had one curve and one stop sign. And that's always growing up where the policeman sat. And that's where he sat that night. But I hadn't been around in a while. I'd forgotten, right? So, man, I came around that curve and I knew it. He lit me up as soon as I came around the curb. The blues came on and I pulled over and I thought, I'm going to get a ticket right here in my hometown. So embarrassing. And, you know, I've, I've got friends. I mean, they thought I was somebody. They're about to learn I ain't nobody. And so he pulls us over and he walks up and he taps on the window. He says, sir, do you have a, a, a identification and registration? I said, yes, sir, I do. Well, I mean, I'm, at that point, you hammer on the manners. To, to let it help you. And I handed it to him. And all of a sudden, he popped down. He shined that light in my face. He went, Lane Harrison, is that you? And I'm like, yeah. And he introduced himself. He said, you remember me? He says, the seventh grader, you stuck my head in the toilet and flushed it. <laughs> this is going very badly. No, I don't remember that. Uh, anyway, he let me off. We... We recounted, I laughed. I really didn't remember him at first, but man, I laughed at everything he said. <laughs> Brown nosing will get you places in life. It's not always a good place where it takes you, but it will get you somewhere. There was a common language here. There was a common location. And those two things created a common identity among the people. And, and that common identity began to emerge. This is what Genesis 11 is teaching us. That out of that common identity of language and location or where they were living, it produced this third uh, characteristic of, of what I would call a collective desire. A collective desire. And, and collective desire begins to form in verses 3 and 4 a voice with a direction that emerges from it. A direction that emerges from it. And so it says this, uh, they made bricks with mortar and they built a city for themselves. And, and it had a tower in it that they were seeing if they could stretch all the way into the heavens. And the common ambition that, or, or desire that arose was driving them. And we see it in the literary feature of the come let us, come let us, let us. Three different times they keep reiterating there's this ambition that's driving them out of their commonality. And the most notable common expression is found in their motivation for why they want to do all of this. They want to make a name for themselves. Two short verses we see a very heavy reality. One commentator says that cities in the ancient Near East were not designed like modern cities today to be lived in, but rather they had the exclusive purpose of religious and public reasons. So in other words, the people lived out in the hills and, and on farms, but they came to the cities for basically two purposes, for religion and for public square issues. The things we might call city government or, or, or uh, the things of, of, that were of public importance. 
And and so what we see here is this, this tower emerging because in the place that represented their commonality, they wanted to make a statement to all others. And that statement was simply one, don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. We're fortified here. And you see, here it is that we see the apex of their driving ambition by their underlying motivation for fame and ultimately for glory. They wanted to make a name for themselves. This is also a common desire that comes out of our culture today as well. With the uh, creation of what we now know as social media, it's actually become a viable like a career choice. I can't imagine telling my father when he asked, son, what do you want to do with your life? I want to be a social media influencer. Yeah, well, you go get a job until you get there, okay? You know, but now like this is it. This is, this is what they want to have happen. And there's so much good that happens on social media. I know sometimes you have to really dig and, and pile through it to be able to find it. But, but you know, I follow so many on social media that are creating good culture. They're craftsmen of their trades. They're helpers in their, uh, their posts. And there's so much good that comes from it. But, but in the midst of all of that is littered by these influencers. And, and really, I'm pretty well sure that the word influencer today simply means this. I own a camera and I take pictures of myself. I'm pretty sure that's what they do. Like, Like at least I changed the background, right? But I'm always in the picture. Because we begin to see how the whole point of being that influencer is, look how great my life is, be like me. It's also caused this little thing called social media depression. Because we look at their perfect life and we think, that's not my life. What's wrong with me? Instead of, is that real? Right? So in the midst of the good, we see also much of what they were dealing with here in verses 3 and 4 of Babel, uh, of this tower building, if you will, making a name for ourselves. And and at the height of their ambition, we see the high point of the narrative. But it's not the name for themselves that they made. While the people are trying to build a tower to heaven, verse 5 tells us that the one who lives in heaven, who has the only name worthy of all praise and honor, was already on his way down, was coming to the people. You see, the narrative climaxes not in verse 4 at the building of the tower, but in verse 5 at the coming down of the one who lives in heaven, God. Go to verse 5 with me. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. You see, at the apex of this story, it is God who comes down to see the city and the tower that they have built. And hear me, God is not pleased. 
God is not pleased with this. You see, God is not merely looking on their progress and development. That is not what he is displeased with. It's not the construction, but rather it's the motivation. It is the human pride and it is the building of self and security in oneself that is displeasing the Lord. And so God looks and he is displeased by man's ambition for self-glory. That's what God is seeing. You see, humanity's epicenter is enshrined with man's greatness and man's effort to save himself. And do not think that we live in a culture today that is absent of the tower building. I'll make one simple application. And here again, as I'll say when I get to culture more in a moment, not everything you see in culture is inherently bad. That's not the point. But the point is this, friends. It's about why we do what we do. You look at the largest buildings in society and it will tell you where the greatest idols of that society are, where we're investing the greatest portion of our time and our energy and our resources. And you'll be able to identify the principal idols of any culture. And that's what we're beginning to see in Genesis 11, very much so in an embryonic state. But God is looking upon the sinful heart of man and its effects. And he is saying to us what it is that sin will do to us if we only follow this common desire or common ambition in the world. You see, when God looks, he sees far more than bricks and mortar. He sees sin's effect and how it is that it destroys, how it is that it deceives and kills. And he is the one who knows only from the beginning because he is the one who looks on the heart and he does not judge the ability of man, but rather the ambition of man. Sin displays its ultimate aim in humanity to steal glory from God and to make man into God. Look at God's response and how it mirrors man's action. God says, come, let us. To whom? To the other two members of the Godhead the Son, and the Spirit. God confuses the language so they cannot understand one another. Why is that? Because it was their common language that brought them to a common location and began to be the seedbed for a common ambition. And what God had told them by his word when they came off the ark was be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, not find a place to raise your own statue and warn anybody else that might come along and threaten it. God wants to fulfill the work of his word and he does it by his word. And so he confuses their language so they can't understand one another. All of a sudden they become fearful of one another and they disperse across the earth and the city building ceases, it tells us. Now here the narrative concludes by the naming of the place Babel. And it got that name because of what God had done, not because of what man had done. It got the name because of what had happened to man but because what God had done to bring that about. They made a name for himself, but I guarantee you the name was not as they originally envisioned it to be, right? I mean, think about this for a moment. Every one of us at some point in life ponders whether or not we'll ever have the opportunity for our 15 minutes of fame. The problem, though, is that most of us don't imagine that when we get it, we'll probably end up, we're more likely to end up featured on a website like the people of Walmart than we are to actually be 
you know, enthroned in some glorious way. That, that we're more likely to end up that eyewitness on the night, nightly news that was in t-shirt and boxers when the newscast showed up with a bright light and all of a sudden you're going, what? I, um, and you go, is that the absolute best witness that they could find? No, but it was going to be the most entertaining because if they came out of their house that way, whatever comes out of their mouth is going to be worth hearing for some entertainment value. And we all know the news is not for news, right? It's for entertainment. We're clear on that? Sorry. That's a, I digress. What they became known for did not sound as glorious as what they had heard in their own minds when they conceived of it. Their plan for glory became nothing more than a chaotic babble of confusion. You see, friends, man's glory, success, always sounds so great and seems so high with promise. Yet when it stagnates, it disappoints because at the end you, you realize it never produces what it promises. As a young pastor out of seminary, I was studying for a passage one time and, and looking through some illustration, I came across an article of, at that time, 25 years ago, 10 of the most wealthiest successful people in American life. And I mean, they had names that are common brand names today that still exist. And they talked about how at the apex of their success and the greatest amount of their wealth, they were some of the most miserable people. And out of those 10, the vast majority of them died from suicide. Others of them died from complete aloneness because they had driven everyone else away from their lives. And, and their success in the world had brought them to a place that made them absolutely miserable within that world. And I was struck by that. And the article said, do you know what the person who is most successful in worldly values wants? Just one more of whatever it is they've spent their life chasing. Just one more. There's never contentment. You see, the author repeats that the Lord dispersed them across the face of the earth because God is serious about his glory of filling the earth with man and his multiplication. Now for us, we, we look at a world that now, one of the biggest problems we want to talk about is overpopulation, overcrowding. You know, what, what's going to happen? I mean, we're going to run out of natural resources. And, but at this point, God was saying, I, I want to fill the earth. And at the end of this short narrative against man's ambition for glory and his own effort to save himself, the word of the Lord Almighty is that which shows itself to last forever. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Friends, never question this. God will have the last word. And his word always works to accomplish his will in his way. And here it is at the end of chapter 11 where we reach the end of biblical record of primeval humanity. People are scattered across the face of the earth. They are not, uh, not left to pursue their own glory, but, but the fulfillment of God's creational mandate is going forth. And his mandate will be fulfilled on the earth for glory, but it will not come through the common human consensus. God's glory in redemption will come as his plan is revealed in his word.
That's what we learn here. You see, the remainder of chapter 11 tells us of the genealogies of Shem and Terah's descendants. And from them, we see this one name at the end, who is Abram. And it will be Abram through whom God will start a nation of people who were chosen to bless the world and through whom the Messiah will come to fulfill God's promises. And so what we're understanding here is that in the midst of man's sin-stained babbling for glory, God is the one who speaks a better word of true glory. That God's true glory is one of redemption and salvation of sin, not one of good luck earning your way out of sin. That God's better word is one of a life that is full of what we were created for, of all that we long for, to walk with God in relationship with him as he created us and intended for us. Friends, today I want you to see that sin centers people to build life on man's glory. But God's word centers us to live for his glory as we trust in Jesus for salvation. Today, I want you to understand the impact of this chapter. And as we come to a close on this this first section of the study of the book of beginnings, and as we have considered the question of provenance and origin, where do we come from and how do we get here and how do we get to where we are today, we, we see at the very essence that it is God who is working in the world to bring about the work of his word and his will in his Way. And he is working that people might live in a right relationship with him for his glory. I, I want us to see today the, the missionary heart of God to redeem people and to save for his glory. For there is a better word of greater glory by which the nations will be gathered and will be centered. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is God's better word for redemption and glory. I want us to look at three essential elements that reveal God's plan for glory through redemption in the world so that we can more fully understand what God was doing here and how it is that he has brought that redemption into the world. First of all, we look at God's redemption as it begins with his better world being spoken better word being spoken into a confused and divided world. When God disperses the people at Babel, he's not only warning of the dangers of man's sin-stained glory, but he's working to accomplish his word as it goes out to, to multiply and to fill the earth in its creational order. You see, God is scattering and his division of people by language confusion is the first act to prepare the world for the better word that he will speak. And when does he speak that word? Well, if we fast forward to the New Testament in the book of Acts chapter 2, we see him speak this word. Acts chapter 2 records an event known as Pentecost. Pentecost. And listen to verses 4 through 7 of Acts 2. On that day... They were all filled, speaking of the disciples there, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and to begin to speak in other language as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. 
And at this sound, what sound? When the tongues came from above and divided and lit down upon the, uh, the disciples. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not these the ones who are speaking? Are they not Galileans? In other words, how in the world would they know my language? This is a powerful, powerful time when, when we begin to see the better word of God spoken. And it's spoken into the, the cultures of humanity with a better word than, than anything that the world has to offer us. God came down a second time to the nations and he gathered by a miracle through his servants. Now I want you to be careful not to confuse the real point of Acts 2 here. The point is not tongues. Sometimes tongues are the most celebrated aspect of Acts chapter 2. And it doesn't make them inconsequential, quite the obvious, but through the miracle of the speaking of different languages, and that's what this is, because those hearing heard the tongues of those Galileans and understood it in their own language. Now, that's what we understand. We don't know. Some argue that the miracle was those speaking actually spoke in another language. And other people argue that what they, the miracle was that the hearing was in another language. I don't know. The fact of the matter is a miracle of tongue speaking happened on that day because from those which one language should have come from, every language represented was covered. Bill Toller, my New Testament professor in seminary and a distinguished New Testament professor of the former generation says if you look at the ethnicities of the people who were represented in verses 9 through 11 of Acts 2, there were 12 languages represented. And if you look at the fact that the divided tongues landed upon the, the disciples who would become the apostles, that each apostle was speaking in a different language that would have addressed all of the nations that were represented in the marketplace on that day. Miracle of God is, is detailed without ex extent. His, his miraculous glory is incredible. You see, friends, at Pentecost, God speaks by the miracle of divided tongues that rested on the disciples, and it filled them with the Spirit of God to speak other languages and to tell the better word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. At Pentecost, God is the one who came, and God is the one who gathered the nations by the gospel of Jesus Christ for his glory. Later in chapter 2, Peter will stand up and begin to preach, and his sermon will record the content of that better word. It is a message where they proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and what he had done through his coming, through his living, through his dying, and through his resurrection. You see, friends, God's message is a better word of salvation by faith through grace in Jesus. You say, better word than what? It's a better word than what you might hear if you think you can earn your way to heaven. If you can build your way to heaven, if you can achieve or accomplish your way to God-like status, God says, not going to have it. It's not possible. But in the midst of the confusion he creates, he speaks a better word of salvation by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 24 tells us 
that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. His sprinkled blood speaks a better word. Better word than religion that tells you to man up. Better word than religion that tells you to try harder. A better word than religion that says all you got to do is this. And when you do that, it doesn't bring what it promised. A better word than the hollow, shallow, complete failure of human striving absent of God. That's God's better word in Jesus Christ. And his better word is that sins are forgiven, that our lives are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and that true glory is revealed in Jesus Christ. You see, what religion and what self-righteousness and even what the common consensus of human success could never do, Jesus has already done for you. Friends, the better word of the gospel is not do your best God expects it from you. The better word of the gospel is not the word of religion that says God will be pleased with you if you please him. But rather the better word of God is that he has done all for us in Jesus. God's better word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God confused the come let us of man that deceives and misleads and produces brokenness and destruction and death And he turned it into the come and receive eternal life because Jesus has already done. If you're waiting because you know you need God, but you don't think you've done enough for God, you're at the perfect place to receive God. Because all of your doing will never get you where you think you can go because of God. The gospel is never we can or I can but Jesus has. The gospel is never strive to earn, but believe and receive his salvation. You see, what God divided at Babel by confusing man's language, he unites at Pentecost under one man by the better word of the gospel of Jesus. And God thwarts the glory of man to speak the better word of the gospel because he alone is worthy and he is the one alone who gives true glory of redemption in Jesus. Friends, the first essential element of God's redemptive plan in the world is his better word in Jesus, the gospel. The gospel. It is the good news of redemption and reconciliation of all things that God is working by his word through the work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the word of God, Jesus, that speaks life. And he is the one who gathers and centers us. From Acts chapter 2, we see the catalytic event where the church begins The Greek word in the New Testament for church literally means assembled or gathered ones. You see, God's plan is to preach the gospel and to gather from every nation people who will declare his glory. God scattered at Babel by confused language, but now through the preaching of the gospel, as he gathers people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, he's bringing us under one Lord with a common identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's called the church, friends. For the church is the gathering of people by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the living word at work within us to bring about the will of God in the way of God and Jesus and Jesus alone is our common uniting center. It does not matter how diverse the church becomes when Christ is the center. 
We are one. You see, that's why a congregation shouldn't all look the same. That's why there ought to be people in the room every week that aren't like you. Because when Jesus is Lord, he's bringing people from the nations who have a commonality, a common identity that is far beyond any single individual of us. And that's God's glory. Ephesians 4 verses 4 through 6 tells us there is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, friends, the Christian's language and location, what it is that identifies and defines us, what it is that we love and and what it is that we desire and what it is that motivates us is the love that we have received from God in Jesus Christ. We are the beloved of God who live compelled because of Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us, that God separated the nations to cover the earth, that from the nations he might gather his own people by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the church. You see, Christians are not principally identified first by our location or or even by our natural tongue, but by our one Lord and by his language and the same words in that language is the gospel. Friends, I, I, I don't, don't dare to, to say that I would be the most traveled one in the room, but by God's grace, in the last 25 years, he's granted to me the opportunity to travel into a number of different cultures on different continents, from North America to Central America and South America to Africa and, and Western Europe. And, and here's one thing that I understand, that when I can't communicate and even ask where the bathroom is, right? Like Central America, I'm like, where is a? the bathroom they have no clue what I'm speaking though it's perfect Spanish I'm convinced but when I can find somebody to speak in their native tongue and I can begin to tell them what God did in my heart and how his death for me has made all the difference in me you just watch them. Their countenance just begins to fall. And initially they wonder, could that be true for me? And then when you begin to tell them that what God did for me wasn't just for me. It's what Jesus has done for all. He's done it for you. And all of a sudden, their eyes light up and they, they begin to, to hear. And you can see when they want to believe and When you ask, would you like to know this God who saves? I don't know the words that are being spoken there. But this is universal. Because the hope in Jesus Christ transcends all native tongue. It is the better word of God. It is the hope of humanity. And there is no one in any corner of the world yet the universe that is not existing with this deep longing of soul that Jesus gives. 
You see, sin separates and divides, but in Jesus Christ, no barrier remains. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28 tells us, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And God, He redeems for a true glory. Ephesians 3, 10 tells us, So that through the church... Listen to this, friends. The manifold wisdom of God. What is the manifold wisdom of God? It is His power through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Listen, friends. This second element of God's redemptive plan, the church, we're not here today just to witness to one another. We're not here today just to witness to the city and the region in which we live and the people in which we live around. But our being here today, our gathering in the name of Jesus is speaking a better word even to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. God is making a statement by the redemption of his people through the gospel. And that statement is being made through the church of Jesus Christ. Do not diminish what God is doing. The second essential element of God's redemptive plan is the church. God's people living centered on Jesus together under his lordship. He is our common everything because in him we are united as one to declare the glorious praise of his name. The third essential element of God's redemptive plan is culture. Now, some of you are surprised by this, but culture is essential because it's where the nations are located. It's where people live. And culture includes things like language and food and traditions and celebrations and and even the religion that holds them. Did you know that there are zero irreligious cultures in the world? Zero irreligious cultures. Why? Because everybody's worshiping something. Everyone is worshiping something. And this is the reason why it is essential to God's redemptive plan. In his plan, God sends his church into the culture to preach the gospel so they can hear and believe and receive. You see, friends, culture is not inherently bad, but it is under sin's influence. This is what the New Testament teaches. When Paul speaks of the aspect of culture that is stained by sin in the New Testament, he uses it by talking about the world and its influence. You see, building culture is not a problem. The bricks and the bitumen, the towers and the city walls, those were not the problem for God. The problem for God is what he looked at when he saw man doing that in Genesis 11. It was his heart and it was the motivation for self-glory. And God's heart for man wasn't threatened by man's work, but rather he said out of love and compassion, that'll only steal from you, it will destroy you, it will ultimately kill you. It was an act of compassion with which God confused their language. You see, building culture in our day is not the problem. For, for beautiful craftsmanship where people excel in their craft, a professionalism where professionals seek to excel in their field or their discipline. These are not the problem, friends. Technological development and advancement, I'm thankful for it. I'm glad there's a pill instead of a needle, you know, that kind of thing. These are not inherently evil, but listen to me, God does not oppose the glory of man's accomplishment and development because he is threatened by it. God opposes it when it has taken hold of our heart and we are deceived by it. 
That's what God opposes, and he still does today. The pride of man's heart to steal glory and to strive to earn absent of him. You see, mission is when the church is in the culture to share the gospel by simply addressing the issues of people's lives with the better word of God's truth for glory. God redeems people to bear a unique glory of his image in relationship with him in creation. And listen to me, friends. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that Christians are called out of the world. That's for sure. But we are commissioned to go into the culture. You say, what's the difference? Well, being called out of the world means that God is taking the world out of us. We are being released from what is entangling us, that sinful nature that has hindered us. And we are being released to follow him by faith into the very place where there are people still in bondage and slavery of sin. If God called us out of the culture, we'd need to build a compound, and that still wouldn't be enough. But we don't live on compounds. We'd need to get away from people who weren't God, God people, as quickly as possible. But God says, no, I have you there for a reason. You see, we're called out of the world to be released from the sin stain that enslaves, that we might be by his commission sent back into those places of darkness, places you live, the places you work, the places you recreate, the places you shop, the place where you live your life. God has put you there for the purpose of declaring the glorious praise of his better word in Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that, friends. When you are irritated and absolutely frustrated with the brokenness that you see in this world, remember this. God came down to you and he's got you there because he's sending you to share his better word with them. The third essential element of God's redemptive plan is culture, where God commissions the church to go preach the gospel so people can hear and believe and receive eternal life. In Jesus Christ. Well, with this, we conclude our consideration of the question of provenance, of origins. And I can't think of a better time than Christmas to actually talk about this. When God came down for true glory. Because that's exactly what Christmas is. That's what our celebration is centered on. And as we gather and as we consider the manger of Jesus Christ over the next couple of weeks leading up to Christmas itself, let us not culminate only on the manger, but through the manger look to the nations. Because church, that's why we exist. We are here to share the gospel with all the nations, beginning with the neighbors that live across the street from you. So what is it that centers your life? What are you striving for? What, what do you want to live for? Is it, is it success or is it faithfulness? Is it self-glory or is it God's glory? Is it you or is it Jesus? Sin centers people to build life on man's glory, but God's word centers us to live for his glory as we trust in Jesus for salvation. Let's pray.